0: welcome to the scott thompson home show podcast coming up the leafs are losers hey you can mix and match your vaccines now what does the new stress test mean for you buying a home but first we address the horrific find at a kamloops residential school site where the remains of 215 children were found Where is the Catholic Church on all of this? Canadians are finding out about this. Canadians are learning about this. Canadians are discussing this. Canadians are disgusted by this. Uh, Where's the Catholic Church and why are they not stepping up to shoulder at least? their portion of the responsibility here. Feel free to weigh in on that. A reminder, coming up, uh, we are going to stop for a minute of silence in order to remember those that disappeared at this Kamloops Residential School. 215 children's remains, some as young as three years old. Uh, we cannot let this slip through our fingers Again, we have got to check out other sites. We have to make sure that this is not the tip of the iceberg. And sadly, I believe, uh, that it is just the tic- uh, tip of the iceberg. And as, uh, as time goes by, um, Ooh there's, there's gonna be a lot more healing that needs to be done, uh, I believe. Anyway, I wanna play you a couple of uh, clips. Uh, this from Butch Wolfdog. Butch Wolfdog attended a residential school near Siksika Nation, uh, 1956 to 1958, and he talks about his experience there.
1: The thing I remember is always being watched
0: uh,
1: and uh, being uh, checked whether we we're speaking our language. And for me, it was doubly hard because I was left-handed. And uh, they told me that that was a sign of the devil. So I was severely punished on my left hand. Wow.
0: Uh, And Butch Wolfdog on how he feels regarding this discovery and what is happening in Kamloops.
1: It really uh, created some emotions for me uh, where I had to take a drive and have a good cry out of out of that out of that remembering but also being grateful to these children that were found
0: all right. That is uh, Butch Wolfdog uh, talking about his experiences and then learning of what we all have learned about Kamloops. Let's bring in Dr. Don Laval, Harvard, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director at Trent University. We talked to her yesterday, and after I hung up, I realized I have more questions uh, than than uh, you, you can possibly imagine. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time and returning uh, to talk with us. Uh, greatly appreciated. Thanks for your time.
2: You're very welcome.
0: I think one thing that stood out for me in our conversation yesterday, and that I I didn't realize, and and again I've I've been talking about this with my family uh, as adults, as a guy in our fi- a man in my fifties, I can't believe that in my adult life I'm now just learning about this, uh, which is a, a great difference from my kids who I know in school are learning way more about this than I ever did. Whether that's enough or not. I'm not sure, but one of the things you said yesterday that really struck me was that no, Canada has none of the records of these kids, and that when and correct me if I'm wrong here, when these schools were closed, these records went back to the Vatican. Is that accurate?
2: So there, well, the biggest concern here really is the lack of records and and in fact that nobody really knows where a lot of the records have disappeared too, um, or if there's claims that they don't exist, and is there any reason
0: them, to think that they are still around? If at the Vatican,
2: um, absolutely. So, from what I've been able to understand of this, you know, incredibly complex situation, is that the Catholic Church diocese kept secret archives dating back to, you know, the 10th century when they had to create these secret archives at a time when the Catholic Church was being persecuted. So there's, you know, records of secret marriages, secret ordinations, and other really high profile cases um, in the United States have been able to access these secret archives and have found, you know, massive very detailed records of what happened in cases of, of abuse against children in schools, uh, of abuse uh, by priests. And, and there were these, these secret documents. Now, the fact that within Canada, oh, the TRC report, I think it's something like 88% of the records that were supposed to be, retur- supposed to be turned over were not turned over to the, the TRC. So there's. Now, you know, considering
0: the. Considering the depth of this now and the fact that there are remains from 215 children on this site, um, will they now be forced to cooperate uh, just simply because now there's hopefully will be an investigation of some sort? Well,
2: this is really what we're hoping and and again you know if we if we look at these really high profile cases there's one in pennsylvania in 2018 uh the attorney general josh shapiro you know they found files on you know, th- over a thousand children that had been abused and that there were secret files you know another case in boston the same thing was in 2002 against the boston archdiocese so These secret records are out there somewhere, and the fact that none of this has been turned over shows a real lack of accountability, that there was, you know, 36 orders that were running, you know, schools were run by 16 dioceses and 36 orders of the Catholic Church that have to have these records somewhere. And it has been suggested by experts Hmm. that they were, that these documents Hmm are being kept in the Vatican and Rome, which, you know, that really complicates the ability of any particular one country's government to be able to compel the Vatican to do anything.
0: Dr. Don LaVelle, Harvard with us, President of the Ontario Native Women's Association. We are now going to pause for a minute for a moment of silence to remember the 215 who vanished at a Kamloops residential school. We have been pausing for a minute to remember those 215 children that disappeared at the Kamloops residential school. Dr. Don Laval, Harvard with us, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director of Trent University. Uh, Don, how concerned are you? I mean, we understand this Kamloops school was was the largest, if not uh, one of the largest. How concerned are you? This is one residential school site, the largest from what we understand, but there's many more. How concerned are you that there are other unmarked graves at other sites?
2: I'm hugely concerned. I, there is evidence of unmarked graves at at least two other sites that they have already found direct physical evidence of. And given the stories of the survivors who talk about you know, their classmates who just disappeared at one point and were never spoken of again, the number of families whose children went off to the schools and were never heard from again, it's imperative that they search each and every residential school. Because you know, if there's already three, it's it's, in fact, quite logical to believe that you know, they're, they're all run by the, the same organization. I'm sure these three weren't the exception to the rule.
0: Has the Catholic Church commented on this latest discovery at all?
2: Not that I have seen anything. Um, so far, the Catholic Church, the head of the Catholic Church, and there's been numerous calls for the Pope to apologize to the, you know, for their role in this, and they have so far refused, saying that the head of the Catholic Church is not responsible for what happened at you know, individual orders or dioceses within Canada. But, I mean, to me, it's fundamentally absurd to suggest that the head of the Catholic Church is not responsible for what happens within the Catholic Church in any of their orders. They're, all of the orders, all of the dioceses, all of the bishops and cardinals, I mean, there's a very clear hierarchy that reports very clearly up to the head of the Catholic Church, so of course, if if you are the one who is the head of the Catholic Church, then you are responsible for that. I mean, even Tom McMahon, who was the general counsel for the Truth and Reconciliation, said of the eighty eight separate Catholic Church entities that were signatories to the original settlement agreement for the residential school settlements. Very few of them ever turned over the records. And you know, he's the one who has said that he believes that these secret archives that would be kept, that have, they've gone back to Rome, that they're being kept there, which would put them out of the reach of any individual nation. So you know, there's real concern here. And it, I think the time has come for the Church to... A Church that is founded upon belief in confessing and asking for forgiveness to come forward and, you know, make these families whole again, release the records of what happened to the children in the schools so that those children can be identified and returned to their communities for proper burial so they can be laid to rest in peace.
0: What will happen at this Kamloops site now? What happens to the remains of these 215?
2: Well, this is also where it gets very complicated um, because, you know, if they want to go through that process of being able to identify the individual body and, you know, cross-reference with those records and identify them, you know, we're going to be talking about, that's talking about DNA tests, which means exhuming those bodies,
0: yeah. conducting
2: the necessary DNA tests, and the, the re-traumatizing, the triggering of that process. Again, I can't imagine the pain of exhuming children's bodies and having to go through that process of trying to identify them. So, you know, there's going to be a real a need for healing and support as that the pain for an entire community to have to go through a process of exhuming children is, is inconceivable to me.
0: Is there really any other choice here, Don? I mean, when you think about it, um, how can they not? How can they just how can they find these these remains with uh, with with uh, radar equipment and then just, oh, yeah, they're there and we don't know who they are. We don't know how they died. Um, I, I don't see any other choice unless it's up to the indigenous community to say, no, we don't want this touched anymore. Um, but on and the other where hand, it
2: will really land. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and how do you see that? How do you see live. that? How do you see that uh, playing out, Don?
2: Well, and that's where it's going to land is with each community who is going to have to decide for that particular community what is in the best interest of those children, those families, and their entire community. But again, you know, some of these schools, there were children in those schools from a number of communities. So you add the complexity of what one First Nation decides may not agree with what another First Nation decides when their children were brought together into these collective schools that mix children from a number of First Nations. And, you know, trying to balance the need to identify those children that were in these unmarked graves with the re-traumatizing of a process of exhuming, but how do you not let give those families closure how do we not get yeah. justice and again this circles back to those records if there are records that documented which children were laid in these graves then that's you know that that's that helps to simplify the process in terms of being able to identify and, yeah. and perhaps not have to, like it it would really help those communities heal and help to prevent a lot of additional pain if those records were we forthcoming.
0: And you have to wonder, and I don't know if science allows this, Don, or, or, or whether this is even possible, but you have to think, if in fact they do exhume these, these remains uh, and then uh, you know scientific autopsies such are performed and then some sort of neglect is proven, my goodness, this just, this just goes on.
2: Well, and and this is it, right? When the the tragedies, the greater tragedies that it that could potentially be revealed, as mm-hmm. as bodies come forward, as we do tests, you know, it would be actually this would be a wonderful opportunity. I should have consulted with our forensics department at Trent in terms of you know their knowledge of just how much we can learn from those remains after such a long time has passed and. You know what could potentially be known? I mean we know just from what we already know from the TRC about the medical experiments on malnutrition, where you know in the name of science, indigenous children were literally starved to death as part of an experiment to see the impact of of malnutrition, the testing of vaccines, the you know medical testing on indigenous children, the starvation, the physical, Abuse, the extreme abuse, the you know rampant disease, so many things that were inflicted upon Indigenous children that led to these situations. The just the dehumanization of Indigenous children being treated that way.
0: And you have to think from even a legal perspective. That this would need to be done. Uh, over and above the tremendous human cost and what these families must have to go through if, if this, whatever happens moving forward, that's one element of this. But on the other, on the other side of this, there's still the remains of 215 human beings there. And over and above the, the, the personal connection, the, the community, indigenous community connection and all of that, there's still, are 215 bodies there that nobody knows anything about. There has to be an investigation of some sort.
2: Because that's against the law, right? I mean, clean and simple. That's what I'm you thinking about this, Don. There's, there's exactly, got to be criminal
0: yes there's got to be criminality here there's got to be criminality here in some form even though it was so long ago and maybe not so long ago in some cases but you know over and above the emotional toll this is going to take it seems uh, legally this has to be done it's like it's an incomplete investigation an incomplete police investigation
2: well exactly and and this you know the Simple disposal of human bodies in this way, yeah. the indignity to human bodies is a crime in this country. So this is absolutely evidence of 250, a mass grave of 215 unidentified remains is evidence of a massive criminality here that absolutely needs to be addressed.
0: What's the next step for Kamloops and and those in that area, specifically the Indigenous communities? What are they going to do moving forward with these 215 children's remains?
2: Well, and and I think that is the biggest question is what is the next step? You know, they have to come together and decide as each First Nation, and then as those nations collectively decide what is going to be the next steps, From what I understand, there is a desire to have those bodies exhumed and those children each identified based on uh, whatever DNA they can get so that they really can be, so that they can be remembered, so that their dignity as human beings, not just numbers, not just one of 215 or whatever number they were given by the residential school, that they can be restored to that dignity so that their lives can be remembered and that they can be laid to rest properly according to the traditional ceremonies of each community that they came from. And that's, that's going to be a very complex process, having to bring everybody together and provide the appropriate cultural support to help them through what's going to be a very lengthy, very painful process.
0: Many of us not in the community are completely disgusted, embarrassed. We don't know more about it, didn't know more about it. Many of us adults before we're learning of this sort of thing. How does this change the discussion?
2: Well, I think previous to this, previous to the TRC, you know, previous to this particular finding, People didn't know of the horrors of the residential school. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I hear somebody say, I had no idea, or that, you know, they had a a grandparent who had been in boarding school in England, and, you know, other than the language thing it was, or the poverty, it was, it's the same thing. And it's not the same thing. It's absolutely fundamentally not the same thing as boarding schools. This changes the conversation in terms of the sheer inhumanity. I mean, I've seen... News reports from Israel talking about you know, the, the similarities. And you, you would have to be blind not to see the yeah. similarities when we yeah. start talking about mass graves of children. Yeah. So there is huge criminality here. It changes the conversation, and it, I'm really hoping that this is a tipping point, that this is a turning point for Canadian society to see what happened to our children in terms of criminality and not just tragedy, and really see this as something that we can't turn a blind eye to anymore. We can't say, you know, we need to just move on in a positive way, that we really need to open open our eyes and to address it and shine a light if if it's ever going to heal. Because we know that wounds like this, if they're just left hidden, they fester and that's what generation after generation and as a society canada can't heal and move forward collectively and talk about reconciliation as long as these things are still under there and they're not addressed
0: here's hoping they finally are dr don laval harvard with us president of the ontario native women's association director trent university doctor thank you so much for the time and insight i hope to chat again be well
2: thank you take care
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
2: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My dad is still on the floor crying in the fetal position. It's embarrassing, but highly predictable for the Leafs. That's why I'm a Boston fan. Go Bruins! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson!
0: Yeah, yeah bum. yeah uh good afternoon it is twelve eleven. it is 900 chml i'm scott thompson willers get back at the station keep it the scott thompson home show between the pipes week number 63 jump into the fun or the misery you think about those poor healthcare workers that had to endure all of that last night they thought they'd won the lottery he uh, uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there. Uh, and of course, you can send us a note if you want to reach the Scott Thompson home show. Uh, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. All right, uh let's move on and uh obviously hockey fans in Ontario uh well, I, I if you're a Leaf fan anyway, there's lots of Montreal fan uh, fans here now who have uh, jumped off this bandwagon long ago. I remember uh, a buddy of mine and obviously he instilled some sanity into my uh, son Kurt. He said, "You know, you should never be a Leaf fan. You should be a Boston fan and then you'll never be you'll never be disappointed." And, uh, yeah, my son said that to me again last night. Uh, anyway, uh, obviously, uh, a series that the Leafs were supposed to win. Uh, they have lost. Uh, let's play some clips for you now. Uh, Jack Campbell, goalie for the Leafs, he's what he, here's what he had to say in all of this. I just think of how hard our team battled and
2: for it to end on a goal, worst goal of my career and happening in game seven, you know, it's not acceptable and the team counts on me to be better. And I know I can be a lot better than that. So
0: I'm going to get back to work and be better. And uh, Austin Matthews, who many were expecting uh, a lot more during this series. You know, obviously, when it comes to
3: playoff time, everything's much tighter. I mean, they're obviously a team that defends well. They have a great goaltending. And, you know, in my opinion, I don't think we had any shortage of chances. Like I said, it's a game of inches. We weren't able to capitalize. And obviously,
0: we're out there to, uh, you know, to capitalize. And uh, we weren't able to get it done. You know, in my opinion, we had lots of plenty of looks and really good chances. And uh, the coach, Coach Keefe on all of this. We put ourselves in a good spot in the series and didn't get it done. Despite not having John, despite
2: you know, not having Nick, we were in a good spot and didn't close it out. And we added enough pieces and depth and things like that to be able to deal with those types of situations. So there's zero excuses. Our guys were quite devastated, as you might imagine, after the game. They chose not to speak to the group post-game and look at an opportunity. When the Dust Settles we will have the group back together here again in a couple days, and
0: we'll go through those kind of things then. And of course, let's hear from the fans. All right enough that. Uh let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley show calling us for your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, you predicted this on this show. Yesterday, you said this was going to happen, and uh, you were right.
4: Well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I, i'm I'm rarely right about these kind of things, but I'll say this. I even predicted yesterday, if you recall, the Leafs would fall behind by two goals and then panic and not be able to score on Carey Price, and it would just yep. swirl. It's, it's not because I'm prescient. I am absolutely not. It's because if you've been alive for any period of time in this part of the world, you know how this story goes. You know how this opera plays out. And this is exactly how this happens. This always happens this way. And so, you know, when you listen to Jack Campbell in that clip, And look, of all the people who wore a maple leaf over the last couple of weeks, Jack Campbell is the one guy, or one of very few, who has nothing to apologize for. He was terrific in this series. So when he says, oh, you know, I feel bad because our guys battled so hard. No, that's the reason you lost. They were the less effective, less hardworking, less aggressive, less vigorous, less everything team on the ice. After game four, Everything was going the Leafs' way. Everything. And then all of a sudden, Montreal said, hey, maybe if we skate harder, Toronto will fold. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Toronto had everything going in this series. And then, as I say, in typical fashion, just decided, well, I guess that's enough of a season for us. <laughs> well, let's, once, once the pushback started, they said, yeah, we're not, we're not going to play hard play physical? Come on, that's not us. We're we're done. We're out. We get Doug Ford opened the golf course. It's time. It's time to get out there.
0: You know, and, and by contrast, you, as you know, my, uh, my son and my wife are avid Boston fans. And this yeah. game's, this game's on at roughly the same time it ended, or, or sorry, uh, started a half hour later and that ended, uh, in overtime. And, and, and obviously, uh, we know what happened there, but you know, even going back and forth between the two games, you could just see the difference in play. I mean, yeah. it, it's as if it, like, Toronto wasn't even in a playoff game.
4: I, a part of that, look I, I, between the two series and the other series, I thought about that, and, and part of it really is a full arena versus an empty arena. That it and it kind of looks like when you watch U.S. college football and Canadian college football on TV. You know, obviously, you know we're not comparing the level. The NCAA is a higher level of football, but when it looks like it's an event. Everything looks better. And I, I think that the Canadian series, the Montreal Toronto series, would have looked a lot more similar to the other one if there had been a, an arena full of fans. But nonetheless, uh, no disputing the fact that, you know, you look at Boston and the Islanders and they're pounding each other and they look like, you know, every one of them looks like they will sacrifice anything To win that game. And, you know, this is, this is the problem that the Leafs have had repeatedly. And this is why it's so predictable. It's, it's, you know, again, when Jack Campbell says we battled so hard, look, it's a coincidence or a bad break if it happens once. But you're now talking about with this core group of Maple Leafs, it's happened four, maybe five times in the playoffs. And at a certain point, you, you no longer can chalk it up to a coincidence. This is a habit. This is this is an indication that something in that core group is missing. And you know, what's, leadership. What's that definition? Well, leadership or um, the willingness to do whatever. Uh, I mean, look at that line. You know, you talk about the Bruins. Look at that line with Berger, Bergeron and um, and uh, you know the, the Marchand, the, yeah, yeah, Marchand, all that. Look at that line. Um, Every year when the playoffs get going, they step up their game, and they are better in the playoffs. Every year in the playoffs, Marner's and Matthews disappear. I mean, at a certain point, you can no longer say, well, Matthew said, oh, it's a game of inches. We just were off by a little bit. Well, yeah, but you've been off by a little bit, you and Marner, every playoff series since you've come into the league. So at what point do you start to say, Something isn't there. And and I think if you're not, then that old definition of insanity of just doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result becomes your reality. I, I, I don't know how, if you are the Leafs, you don't look at this and take a very hard look and say, you know, yeah, we can run this out for another year. But based on what, in all the years those, that that core has played together, based on what do we believe wholeheartedly that there will be a different result next time
0: well you know we talked about this at the beginning when Tavares got hurt and obviously they were shell-shocked during that game and and yeah and and you know they 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 had they didn't they, they lost their wits about them in that first game but then they started coming back they started building and obviously the momentum uh was in their favor what happened well, I mean, I, obviously, they started. You know, they started holding Tavares in their hearts, and over the shock of losing him, and we're going to win this for him, and all of this other stuff. But, but then they went dry, like they just I choked. Think, I
4: think Montreal stepped it up, and when it became hard, when the space got taken away, and it became hard yeah. to play, then they disappeared. And so, so who? Go- who goes? Well, that's a great.
0: Question. Who goes? So, does, does a lot of people are talking about uh, Marner going, uh, but you know, Matthews didn't produce much either. I mean, obviously, there's contracts in play here, but what happens? How do you move forward with this? Uh,
4: I uh, see. I don't think anybody in the core is going to go. I, I don't. <clears throat> excuse me. I don't. I don't think they'll do that. I think they're going to look at this and think, like every other year, oh well, you know, but. But we lost Tavares. Okay, that didn't help. Losing Tavares did not help. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, we, we traded for Nick Foligno, and he was hurt. Okay, so he had been helped. But every year, Jake Muzzin was hurt in this last game. True enough, all those things are true. But every team has stuff they have to deal with. And if you're going to base your future expectations on the fact that nobody is going to get hurt then something is, yeah. Yeah, again, you're asking for an awful lot in the playoffs. And so I look at this and I think, okay, you know what they're going to do? They're going to keep all the core together, I expect, and they're going to tinker at the bottom again. They're going to, you know, um, you know, Foligno will be gone, and uh, Thornton will be gone, and Simmons will be gone, and a bunch of other guys who are the low end, and they'll try and bring in some replacement guys at low end money. But, you know, those guys help. The third and fourth lines absolutely help you with depth in the playoffs. But if your multi-multi-million-dollar top line in hockey that you're putting half of your salary cap to is invisible and ghosts in the playoffs, it doesn't matter what depth you have. Like look at the look at the Colorado Avalanche the other day with Nathan McKinnon in that first game against when they won seven to one against Vegas. Nathan McKinnon who has paid $6.3 He He's paid half of what Matthews and roughly half of what Margaret makes. And he was dominant. Even though Vegas is a great team, Nathan McKinnon stepped up his game and said, I'm taking this game over. If your stars are not stars, it is really hard. So even yeah. even if the yeah. Leafs had managed to squeak through this round, if you've got your stars who, uh, you know, you couldn't really build the kind of team maybe you wanted because all your money is tied up to them. If they're invisible, you're not going great.
0: Yeah. Um, breaking news uh, just coming out as we're talking to you, your thoughts on Edmonton uh, football team now known as the Edmonton Elks. Uh, E-L-K-S. Its <laughs> colors the same, everything's the same.
4: It, it, I, I imagine a bunch of uh, old guys in some sort of uh, social club, like a water buffalo, uh, like Fred Flintstone. Do they have a grand koula? <laughs> Will the captain be called the grand <laughs> um The Edmonton elk. I mean that. That I'm sorry. That is having two teams in the. Seattle Come on, on! It's got a nature outside.
0: thing to it, you know. The elk, the nature, the west, the great frontier, all that stuff. No.
4: Okay, so they had to keep it with an E because you didn't want to change the logo because you wanted the EE logo. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, you would have been better off calling it the Edwin Encarnaciels rather than an e if you wanted that. I mean, look, the elk is that. Uh, they sound very graceful, though. I'll give them that. That's
0: right. <laughs> they just avoid the tackle by leaping over everybody. That's right. be Beautiful. So they'll
4: they'll be very in the in
0: the, in the very field. magical.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, uh, okay. Well, the elk. All right. I. 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 I I'm okay. You know what? I'm, I'm
0: Scott sure Radley's I'm been with us, host of the Scott Radley show, and I have a feeling he'll have more to say on this tonight and also columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
2: If you had AstraZeneca as your first COVID-19 shot, you may have been waiting to find out what to do about your next dose. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization is now recommending it is okay to get an mRNA vaccine for your second shot if need be. So that means either Pfizer or Moderna will do. The new advice is based on emerging studies out of Spain and the UK and real-world evidence from France and Germany that says mixing and matching the vaccine this way is safe and effective at preventing COVID-19. However, the panel is not recommending that people who got Pfizer or Moderna as their first shot get a viral vector vaccine like AstraZeneca for their second one. Nassi also advising that anyone who had Pfizer or Moderna as their first shot could follow with either. For the next one sandy salerno global news
0: talk more about all of this let's bring in dr zane chagla infectious disease specialist with saint joseph's hospital and associate professor in the division of infectious diseases and department of medicine mcmaster university and is with us now doctor thanks for the time hope you're well
3: Hi, scott nice to have a uh, nice to chat with you
0: so, NASI, uh now recommending, and I'm noticing now that they're not holding the press conference. It's just part of a Health Co- uh, Canada press conference, which is great because we're hearing this out of one voice and not several. Uh, but obviously, NASSI has uh, agreed and approved the mixed uh, mixing of doses. What exactly does this mean, doctor? Does that mean it's, it's just safe to do this? Do we know of efficacy? Is one better than the other when you do this? Uh, what are your thoughts here?
3: Yeah, there, there's still a couple of questions. I mean, I think we can at least say this is safe from a side effects profile, and that's what that UK data published a couple of weeks ago. There was a small Spanish study of about 800 people where they actually saw people made really good immune responses, and in fact, better immune responses than people that got AstraZeneca as their two doses. doesn't necessarily mean that it translates into more clinical activity, but it probably means that it's in the same ballpark. Um, And I think the biologic plausibility, look, all these vaccines, even though they have different mechanisms, their function is to still make that viral spike protein and trigger your immune response. They do it in different ways. And so biologically, it wouldn't make sense why these two vaccines couldn't be mixed. It's the question of how much of an effect you get, is it? the same, is it slightly better and what's the optimal interval, which is what we're still trying to find out with uh, with the release of the final UK data set, hopefully in the next couple of weeks.
0: We remember that obviously the Pfizer and the Moderna had a higher efficacy rate than the AstraZeneca, although AstraZeneca is still, you know, very good considering uh, other vaccines and such in the past. Uh, how important is it to have that information about what the efficacy rate is? Could we see? Are you just expecting it to say? You know, for example, if if Pfizer's around uh, ninety-two, ninety-five percent, are you just expecting that when you mix A, Z, and AstraZeneca, it will be a little bit less than that, or could it in some way be more?
3: Yeah, I mean, the the question is the more, right? You know, it, it, these trigger. You know, have the same response, they may trigger our immune system slightly differently. And that might be better, right? Like we do, uh, for example, with our pneumonia vaccines, mixing of different vaccines because we know one triggers our immune response one way, one triggers it another way. And the combination of the two likely do a whole lot more than just giving the one a separate time in the future. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the last bit to find out. We have good modeling data, though, around antibody levels and Predicting efficacy. It's hard to actually get full efficacy because you have to actually give the vaccine to people and then watch them for three to six months to see what happens. Well, you know, that's great, but remember, we had these vaccines, you know, starting on the market in December and in January they started enrolling in this trial. To really get that three to six months worth of data, we're not really there yet. We would rather make the decision based on antibody levels, which Through a number of different studies, actually, really model well to how effective these vaccines are in the general population.
0: So obviously, we're going to have to wait until time goes on to actually Mm. see what that data is. But what we do know is mixing of the two is safe. Accurate?
3: Yeah, exactly. the The UK experience seemed to be at least what they published is people do get a little bit more of the you know, one day afterwards, fever, more of the sore arm, the aches and pains, which actually might be a sign that the immune system is being triggered pretty, pretty aggressively with these vaccines, which is what we want. Um, uh, but nothing to suggest that there's any major side effects that have been seen in the, the about 1,800-person clinical experience with the mixing of the vaccines in terms of anything that, that's notable outside of, again, those, those minor issues that happen with most injections at the time.
0: So here's the million-dollar question, doctor, and I'm sure you don't have an answer to it, or we don't because the research isn't there, but for someone who has had their first AstraZeneca shot, do they wait for a second AstraZeneca shot, or do they take the Pfizer or Moderna?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're in the time frame to get your second AstraZeneca now, it's probably not a bad idea to get it now. You know, the risk of, of blood clotting with the second AstraZeneca shot is about one and a half a million Um, You know, it's there and available. We know with some of the variants, particularly the variant from India circulating, you know, two doses of vaccine are much better than one. And so, you know, if there's no runway, if it's going to be a month or two before you get your second dose, you want that optimal immunity, then, yeah, it's probably not a bad idea to access it now. If you're someone that their second shot is due till, you know, June, July at that point for, for the AstraZeneca, then yeah, it's not a bad idea to wait and see what the data from the UK shows to make an educated decision. There's no rush to get your second AstraZeneca. As we know, it takes, you know, 12 weeks is the most optimal time to get it. There's there's the ability to wait and see. And, and again, I, I'm. You know, I'm pretty confident when, when we look at this data set, we're going to be happy with what it shows and, and likely mixing might be the way of the future in that sense for the AstraZeneca population.
0: Uh, and we should also stress that this is uh, AstraZeneca for the first shot. They, yeah. you know, they will uh, recommend, obviously, a Moderna or Pfizer afterwards is, is, a, is a possibility, but not switching them around. In other words, Pfizer first, Moderna, and AstraZeneca second. That's mm-hmm. not what we're talking exactly, about here. Exactly. They're now, not
3: going to recommend that because of the clotting risk.
0: Right. Now, what about the timetable issue here? Because there's two different types of vaccine here. Uh, mm-hmm. the Pfizer Moderna, 21 to 28 days, the recommending between doses. Obviously, as you mentioned, AstraZeneca it takes up to 12 weeks to get the full, uh, impact of, of, uh, of the immunity it creates. Uh, so same thing. If you're going to get the second shot, but with a Pfizer or Moderna, you still should wait that 12 week period in order uh, before you getting that, before getting that second shot, even if it is a different vaccine.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question is also going to be answered as part of the UK. They've they done two different dosing intervals, and so that'll hopefully help with kind of establishing that. It's probably something that waiting isn't reasonable, whether or not it's, you know, the six weeks, if it's three months, we don't know the exact timeline. The, the Spanish data was at a three-month boost. Um, And so, yeah, you know, my guess is, again, waiting to let the immune system calm down a little bit before you take the second dose is going to be reasonable, knowing that AstraZeneca actually got better a little bit, a little bit of a wait. If it's going to be the full 120 days, probably not. I would guess somewhere between the two to three month point. Uh, And again, that UK data set will help us kind of navigate whether or not it's earlier, better versus earlier uh, versus delaying that second dose.
0: And I just want to clarify this and, and make sure we're not giving out mixed messaging here. Uh, but uh, Canada recommends mixing vaccine doses. Is that what we're getting from NACI? So, in other words, that send you know Canada recommends mixing vaccine doses. Uh, that sounds more that they're in favor of that option as opposed to an AstraZeneca for your second shot. Is it safe to say that's what they are recommending? They're recommending people get the uh, mRNA vaccine as the second dose? No, I think they're
3: basically saying that they have the option as the second. Dose right. In that sense.
0: Uh, so, so, so they're not you know, coming I mean, out and saying they're not physically coming out and saying one one option is better than the. No, other. No,
3: and again, you know, I get I, I think when that UK data set finally does come out, we probably will make the final recommendation at this point. It's right now. Well, well, again, people are getting to their 12 week post AstraZeneca. They don't want to necessarily get the second vaccine right. that we're just putting it out there to say, OK, fine, you can you can do this as Germany and France have been doing while we're getting the rest of the data.
0: When do you think we will know more on this?
3: So, you know, that safety signal, that safety, uh, signal, uh, the, the safety clearance uh, in the UK study, in their publication, they actually did say that they're going to publish more data in June around how this works. And so I am expecting, again, it's June now, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're going to learn that UK experience, as, as I think the rest of the world is waiting for this. Not just us, there are many other countries that have Started with this mixed dosing, especially Germany and France. Um, you know, I think all of us are sitting there waiting. So, so again, I'm guessing in the next couple of weeks we're going to hear from it.
0: So uh, we obviously know the confusion that's been in the past around AstraZeneca and what has happened there. Uh, what does this mean for AstraZeneca? What do you say to Canadians who are wondering what they should do? Do you think this will increase the hesitancy around AstraZeneca?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, clearly we're not giving it away for first doses anymore. There's not yeah. really a good reason now, especially with the pandemic regressing in Canada and many places. Um, I think from a federal standpoint, there probably needs to be a line in the sand about how much we want to purchase and how much we want to keep in the, in the country. And then just saying, we're going to just pivot everyone over to a second dose of MRNA vaccine. I mean, guessing that they're waiting for the, the final data set to finally kind of put it, put the nail in the coffin for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there is um, an incredible amount of hesitancy, although, you know, it's funny, in Hamilton, we were doing the second dose of AstraZeneca this weekend, and there was massive lineups, right? So mm-hmm. there are people that are still invested in getting their second dose on time. Um, but yeah, I think there's, uh, there's, there's likely going to be an endpoint to AstraZeneca being distributed in Canada long term.
0: Uh, obviously, we saw that uh, there was a pause in AstraZeneca over the last few weeks. Now, uh, 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 Nassy and such have given information, and, and, and now that has been re-released back out into the public. Uh, there was concern that these uh, this limited amount of doses, and I think it's like about mm. 40,000, may mm. expire. That expiry date has been uh, extended. Your thoughts on extending that expiry date? Uh, and, and what about new arrival of AstraZeneca? I hear towards the latter part of June, but nothing seems to be uh, set in stone as to when it's going to arrive.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, there's um the the decision this weekend was really based on the collaboration with Health Canada and AstraZeneca, looking at the lots, looking at stability, and again, those expiry dates, like some of the things we buy from the grocery store, aren't you know dead set dates. they're yeah. they're dates of uh, best before that are based on you know, a well, well-defined clearance, but reality is the clearance is probably much higher in that sense. Um, so, you know, that's reasonable. I think AstraZeneca even helped with that decision making, and those two lots are, are available on the market. What I do think, though, is Canada is likely looking at how much, how many people do they think are going to come back for their second dose of AstraZeneca and having a supply for them, um, and then uh, and then realistically just Again, stopping or or taking the purchases and diverting them to to more global networks to to vaccinate the rest of the world. And I really do hope that we are starting to have these discussions as it is a precious resource. And if we're not going to use it and make a long term plan away from it, we're fortunate to have a lot of mRNA vaccines. Then we probably should start talking about what we want to do with it to help the rest of the world right now
0: uh they were talking about more coming in in june that's astrazeneca any where would that be coming from because we certainly know that india has clamped down on that because of the situation that Mm. they're in so do we know where this would have been coming from
3: yeah, we've had three places or four places. One, AstraZeneca proper in, in the, the United Kingdom and, and the uh, EU. Two is COVAX itself. And I don't, I doubt we're taking any more from there. That's kind of what our stock is right now. Uh, Covishield, as you said, uh, India's supply has ran out. And then we did take some doses in advance from the United States. I don't know if our supply is actually coming from that advance. Or uh, there's more of an advance given to us. But yeah, it's probably either from the EU, UK, or, or the US supply that they've probably never going to approve in that sense.
0: So obviously, the people that are being called back for their second shots of AstraZeneca are people that were some of the very first to get vaccinated way back when. But come summertime, as. Uh, other people and other age groups become. Uh, it gets towards their 12-week period. Uh, we could very well see uh, the end of AstraZeneca mm-hmm. and those people getting jab with Pfizer or Moderna.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, and honestly, I think it's probably the next month. Once uh, once yeah. July rolls around, we'll have our data in hand. And again. There's likely just going to be an offering for AstraZeneca for whoever wants to get their second dose, and the rest are just going to be pivoted to uh, to Pfizer and Moderna. And, and again, you know, we'll likely see that that point in late June, early July, where we just stop taking AstraZeneca entirely and say it's not a part of the long-term future here in Canada.
0: So uh, we're seeing Ontario's numbers drop mm-hmm. yet again; new cases down to 699, and uh, also good news: uh, ICU. A mm-hmm. uh, uh, capacity down uh, below 600. So, your thoughts on those numbers? I mean, that's clearly vaccination.
3: Yeah, it is. It's a very interesting too. When you break it down, there's actually more people in ICUs than on the wards in and hospital. And, and even though that might seem counterintuitive, you know, many of those ICU patients are unfortunately April patients, right? And they're still there in the ICU till till the end of May now June um but you're seeing that new flow into the ICU plus again the new flow onto the hospital wards is really really ramped down right some of it is public health measures but some of it is legitimately um the vaccines that are just even if people are are getting sick even if people are getting covid they're not ending up as part of their hospitalization or their ICU um and it's a good thing going forward it just leaves us in this very precarious spot because Again, some of those ICU patients aren't going to be leaving the ICU anytime soon, and and public health measures aren't necessarily going to affect their prognosis. Um, But at the same time, the inputs are slowing down significantly. And, you know, again, balancing that capacity versus uh, knowing that the disease transmission in the community is at a very low point is, is really the tough part of navigating the next couple of weeks
0: uh all right uh, obviously reopening is on everybody's minds as we see cases go down vaccination rates go up uh again ontario's numbers sitting at at 699 lots of chatter about schools and whether we can get the kids in and for the last few weeks to sort of bridge the gap between this year and next year what are your thoughts on reopening of the schools
3: yeah, I mean I think what the province or at least the side table put out is a regional approach using public health capacity and contact tracing in case there's any transmission in schools. Um, you know, is a is a reasonable compromise to give kids some semblance of normal on the back of everything else. If there isn't public health resources right now, they're still catching up, decompressing, then unfortunately I think that that, you know, puts it out there in terms of them not being as as well uh, well looked after from a public health standpoint. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there is some nuance and subtlety here in certain regions, um, recognizing that again, if, if public health is there, if mitigation measures are there, they probably can be operated safely for the next couple of weeks. Um, but if public health isn't able to really support that through through you know burdens in those communities, then it's it's hard to justify opening them up if, if there is going to be case activity that spills back into the community
0: uh ontario obviously a very vast province very diverse okay. province uh you know you can see in some areas how this is totally acceptable and mm-hmm. others where it may not be uh wh- what do you think where do you think that will leave the hot spots like toronto and peel and such yeah uh, do you I think mean, they I will, the will really they will fall into that it. i would do you think- suggest it-
3: yeah, they probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't open. Like Toronto yeah. and Peel, I think, are still dealing with pressures. They're still dealing with workplaces. They're still dealing with vaccinating a good chunk of the population. Whereas I would say, you know, Northern Ontario, the outskirts, London, Windsor, places like that could likely deal with a reopening plan with very close public health follow up
0: and what do you think uh or how does this affect our mental health realizing that we are now this close to it we can see the light at the end of the tunnel we can even feel the warmth of it on our face yeah uh, talk about the mental health aspect of this and re-entering society
3: yeah i mean it's it's funny because i think you know we're seeing in the uk there's kind of three people there's ones that are just jumping full back into it and, and re-engaging and doing everything that they missed uh, a few that are kind of just dipping their feet in the water, going slowly, and then a third group that is completely paranoid about you know that 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 things are going to get worse, that they don't want to reengage with society, um, and so yeah, I mean we're going to see very different groups and factions kind of move out there because again different people will will have faced this differently from a, a risk standpoint. Um, but I don't want to minimize. There is going to be a mental health burden. Uh, and, um, and you know, uh, certainly at the hospital standpoint across the province, we're looking at this, right? Because, you know, at the end of this, what happened over this last 18 months, you know, we're seeing a lot of hope, we're seeing an end point, we're seeing life getting back to normal. But there's scars from that 18 months that are going to be long lasting within the mental health system. And, and again, we need the capacity to deal with that as part of the next wave, basically.
0: Are you concerned about another wave we certainly saw what it uh, India has gone through in the last few mm-hmm. weeks Japan is experiencing some issues are, and you know all, obviously the United States has opened up and are celebrating an early vaccination but still um, you know over 50 percent are, are fully vaccinated but then there's some hesitancy are you are you concerned about another wave
3: I think you know we're going to see
0: case transmission go up I think when things
3: open up I don't I don't think that's going to be an understatement you know the variant described in India, Um, which is now in the UK, is showing that in the easing of restrictions, you you are seeing cases start spiking up, particularly in communities of people that are unvaccinated or, or, you know, some people that are partially vaccinated. Um, But, you know, I think this is a very different wave, right? You know, even in England, of 6,000 or so cases of the India variant, there are uh, 11 people that had a single dose and one person that's had a full dose of vaccine that were hospitalized from it. Right. And I think that's the the, the thing moving forward. Yes, we're going to see cases. We may see some hospitalization, which we have to keep on tabs up. And that's probably our biggest indicator of, you know, what we need to do as a society moving forward. But we're not going to see these massive healthcare waves. People have immunity, even with the first dose of vaccine, uh, and uh, and really, that's going to have profound effects in the future. What we're seeing the places like Japan, Singapore, Vietnam. Australia even struggling is that in their com- in the time that they've been having such good control, vaccine hesitancy has been such a big factor for them. And when the cases start coming, especially with these variants, they're finding unvaccinated people quickly. And, and so, yeah, it's up on all of us if we want to make sure that there isn't a fourth wave to get vaccinated, both from a personal risk standpoint, but from a population risk standpoint,
0: too. Dr. Zane Chagala with us, an infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Be well. All the best. Take care. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Canadians across the country are sickened by the news of the discovery of 215 bodies in unmarked graves on the grounds of an old Kamloops residential school site, some as young as three years old. Kamloops had the largest residential school with 500 kids at its peak and was in existence between 1890 and 1978. Dr. Don Laval, harvard president of the Ontario Native Women's Association and director at Trent University, said identifying the remains will be difficult as the student records were sent to the Vatican when the schools were closed. Why that is, is clearly suspect, especially considering the Catholic Church who operated the schools is always noticeably silent on this issue and have yet to even apologize for the atrocities. Maybe now we know why. It's time for the Catholic Church to come out of hiding, stand up, and take the responsibility it has dropped squarely on the shoulders of every Canadian. I'm Scott Thompson. I wanted to read you some email we're getting tons of them in regard to the story uh, that we just did on uh, residential schools Uh, Roy writes this is Canada's Holocaust sorry that's all that will happen no wonder church numbers are down Danielle writes "Uh, what really chills me is also thinking of the kind of suffering these children endured before they died residents who survived were traumatized by the treatment they appeared to be absolutely there appears to be no uh, absolutely no accountability. Thank you for addressing this and for uh, the moment of silence. So, uh, you know, an interesting another interesting story from Rick. He says he's 65 years old, uh, was in school in the early 60s, uh, sorry, 60s and 70s. Never heard anything about the residential school system. We learned about Columbus. Uh, We learned about the Plains of Abraham, War of 1812, etc. My mom came from England as a child. She lived in Saskatchewan. She told me that many friends she had 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 been taken from their homes. They live near a Cree area, near a Cree reserve. I have an aunt who is native who told me stories about her experience in school. I worked with a guy now since past who was in the school and wrote a book about his life. At school, uh, they were locked down in their dorm at night. Uh, when they heard the door being unlocked, they knew something was going to someone was going to be sexually assaulted or beaten with a thick rubber strap. Just for fun, it is a deep, dark secret of Canadian history which needs to be told and investigated. Native people have been treated with disdain, and yes, they have been stigmatized over the years. This needs to be investigated and made right. The Holy Catholic Church and others need to be made responsible for their actions. Uh, the RC Church holds a stronghold, such a stronghold, on some people that they fail to admit they're wrong. Uh, wrongdoing by the church priest's abuse. And now this says Rick, you can imagine uh, just a sample of some of the emails that are uh, coming in today in regard to uh, the discovery in Kamloops at an old residential school site, the remains of 215 children. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. As uh, we come out of a global pandemic, we are certainly seeing priorities change and people, uh, their attitudes change on what they want, what they don't want, uh, especially when it comes to living in a home, a certain type of home. What are we looking for now, different from uh, before the pandemic? Uh, as a result of all of this, uh, now uh, we're uh, introduced to a mortgage stress test that uh, makes it uh, even more difficult to uh, purchase a home. Obviously, prices are going up and um, and and interest rates continue to remain very low, uh, making it very attractive. Many have said, just build more homes. Uh, clearly, there is a supply issue. Uh, you know, we, we, we increase rates of immigration in order to build our population, but are we really making our cities any larger to accommodate, uh, Canada's growing needs? Let's bring in Nick De Silva, vice president and mortgage broker with Northwood Mortgage and is with us now. Nick, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm doing just fine. So what is different, uh, this week as opposed to last week if we were buying a house?
1: Scott, what's happened is the government has increased the minimum qualifying rate, the rate you have to qualify under, which is called a stress test, from four point seven nine to five and a quarter percent. the reality is that it's reducing the average consumer's borrowing power by about four to five percent, which leads to a reduction in purchasing power of about three to three point five percent. Now, in the great scheme of things, when you know you're hearing the news or you read it or you see it on television. We're seeing properties um, selling twenty-five to thirty percent over asking price. So, mm-hmm. what is a three to three and a half percent reduction in, you know, purchasing power going to do? Right? There's no real mm. significant dent in someone's ability to buy a house right now.
0: Why? Uh, why is this being sold as a solution right now?
1: Well, I'm not sure what the solution for. I mean, if you look back to late 2017, early 2018, the government instituted. Number one, the stress test, and then the provincial government instituted the foreign tax and, and uh, rental tax for, for empty properties. And in today's world, there's not much more that they can do right now to cool the real estate market. So the federal government is, is responding to, I guess, calls from critics, from the press, from whoever you want to talk about, to say, hey, do something about these high prices. I mean, they're going off the charts. And so they're looking like they're doing something, but the reality is this is having very little effect on people's ability to buy homes right now.
0: How does supply and demand fit into all of this? Because we're constantly hearing that Canada's growing. We constantly hear uh... that we need more and more people coming in because our, our our population isn't growing as quickly as it needs to yet that being said we're certainly seeing in southern you know, greater toronto hamilton area uh... things exploding things growing what about supply and demand here uh... how much is supply affecting the price of homes
1: supply is definitely affecting homes in. i guess depends what you're looking at in, in a negative way in the sense that there's not enough supply and there's pent-up demand right now. Um, people who have been sitting on the sidelines looking to buy, um, waiting for nice low interest rates, and we have near record low interest rates right now. Um, we have some people who are doing some panic buying who are afraid that they won't be able to afford a home in the near future uh, based on where prices are going right now. Um, we're seeing a large transfer of wealth between the older generations, whether it be grandparents or parents, to the younger generation who are helping them to buy. Um, people now can work from home uh, the pandemic has created a new workplace uh, environment where people can stay at home and work from home. So they're moving out of, you know, the cities, moving out the urban areas and moving into suburbia, moving into a little bit more rural areas, cottage country. Look, the lack of supply is a major issue. And it's not just that we have to build. But, you know, if you look back to the mid 90s, um, there was a, a process called boomeromics. And we talked about the elderly generation moving into retirement homes and these homes that they live in right now will be added to the supply chain. Well, we're seeing, you know, especially with the pandemic, this is not mm-hmm. happening. People are sticking to their homes. They've paid for their homes. They refuse to move into retirement homes or nursing homes or whatever you want to call it. And that supply that we were anticipating is not coming to the market. Top down of the fact that we're not building enough homes and you've got a shortage of supply right now.
0: Uh, why do we not build more? I mean, is it, you know, the last few decades, it's about stopping urban sprawl. We don't need any more out. We need to build up. Obviously, as you've mentioned, COVID-19 has changed all of that. Um, but will this increase the need, the desire to build more? Uh, again, it, it's, it seems we don't want to build roads. We don't want to build houses. But yet we, we expect these cities, these places to grow.
1: God, I've had the opportunity to drive through Hamilton on the outskirts um, for personal reasons, and I've noticed a lot of these big cranes in Hamilton. So obviously, there's big development going on in Hamilton right now, certainly in the city of Toronto, downtown Toronto. Um, you can't even see the lake from where I come from. Um, yeah. You have to be on top of the Sky dome to see it, um, and that sort of dates me because I'm calling it the Sky Dome. Um, yeah, there's a lot of construction upwards, but we're also seeing a lot of construction in um the north part of the city, east and west of Toronto. If you go along Milton, you go into uh Brantford, you go into Cambridge, you go into Kitchener Waterloo, all those areas, uh, massive development going on. North of Newmarket, into Bradford, Holland Landing, um, Queens Landing, up into Keswick, all that area, more and more construction going on. The only places they can't construct on right now is the Oak Ridge Moraine. But you go into Barrie and you know go west to Barrie into Angus and some of these other towns and we're beginning to see these towns begin to really put on a lot of construction. And the value of these homes are going up uh, just as high as if you are in, I guess, the suburban areas right now.
0: So are you saying that there is the supply being built no. uh, or there needs to be more?
1: There needs to be more. Now, I'm not an expert in that area. Um, yeah. For what I read, there's just not enough building going on right now. They are, It is being built up, but just not enough to handle you know, the demand for real estate right now. And, you know, you talked about the immigration coming into the greater Toronto area on an annual basis. I mean, if you talk to real estate agents, you get the number anywhere from 80,000 to 150,000 a year. Where are these people going to live? All right. So that's the big problem that we have right now. They're coming and they're coming with money and they have no place to go at this point in time. Top that with, you know, the generation that, you know, the younger generation, the millennials and the XYZ and whoever you want to call them, who are looking for a place to live, right? And now you've got a, a huge demand problem.
0: Plus you add in a global pandemic and now, you know, the, the, people are changing what they want. They don't want to go up, they want to go out.
1: Right. And the problem with going up right now is that you're you're in a, I hate to say it, like a shoebox. And if you got, a, you know, two people working from home, uh, it just can't happen. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. you got two people on the phone and there's just no way two people could work in, In a a condo apartment right now, so we're beginning to see the movement out out of the city into rural areas where people can afford a home where you know you can have some space and you know uh, two partners can operate their business from that location. It's going to be fascinating.
0: It's going to be fascinating to see how this pandemic does change all of this moving forward. I mean, it's it's going to be huge.
1: It is. And the major concern I see out there right now is what happens when, you know, employers start saying to the people, no, you need to come back and work in an office space. Will that happen? You know, and that's going to create a problem because a lot of them have been told you're not coming back, you know, and so they've bought in, like I said, rural areas, cottage country has has gone up. Um, You know, I heard someone recently call me from Collingwood and they're saying, you can't find anything around here of a reasonable price. The price has gone through the roof. So, you know, All of southwestern Ontario and into country has become very expensive. And so now the problem (laughs) becomes um, what is the pandemic going to do for the real estate market going forward?
0: Mm. Nick DeSilva with us, Vice President and Mortgage Broker with Northwood Mortgage, talking about the new stress tests that have come into effect and what the future of housing is in a post-pandemic world. Nick, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show.